I want to say thank you to a, a few people that are here in, uh, in the room. I want to begin with Pastor Brad Lagos, who uh, is in the back. I'll look at him right there in the green. Do you see him? Raise your hand, Brad, if you don't know who Brad is. Okay. There's Brad. Now, I haven't said why we're thankful. You just clapped because I said his name. Brad is our executive pastor over ministries, and in this uh, search and in the hiring of Mark, uh, Brad has spent untold hours of time and energy. It requires a lot of organization. You know, even Mark and his family being out here this weekend, coordinating everything, it's been a tremendous job, and uh, Brad has done a wonderful, wonderful job in helping this happen, and this campus owes him a debt, and i just like you now to clap in appreciation for Pastor Brad. <clears throat> the, uh, the second uh, person that I want to say thank you to is Harry Beamer, and uh, a year ago we said, hey, Harry, any chance you got a little margin? can kind of step in. And I'm not sure how many times over the 50 plus years that Harry has been a part of this ministry that he has uh, stepped into the, gap, into the gap, filled the role, done what was needed, stepped back again as uh, those needs changed. Uh, but I know he's done it numerous times. And this year is another example of a faithful, godly uh, uh, man who wants to serve Jesus in his kingdom and is willing to stand in the gap and do it. And we just want to say thank you to Harry and to Bonnie. Would you stand a moment? We owe you a great debt. <laughs> Bonnie as well, would you stand please? Thank you so much. Harry's one of those guys, the more you get to know him, the more you like him. And I, I would very much affirm that. Well, our text today is Hebrews 13, verse 17. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Again, our topic, what, uh, what does it look like when you have healthy sheep and healthy shepherds uh, pastoring them? What should that relationship look like? And what are the attitudes that the shepherds have and the sheep have that help make that Happen. Now, I just want to begin by uh, asking the question, are you uncomfortable being called a sheep? Because in the analogy, you are the sheep. Now, before you say, I don't like that, I, I, it's sort of demeaning to me, realize that this is what the Bible calls us. In fact, this is what Jesus himself calls his people, that we are the sheep of his pasture. And Hebrews 13, verse 20 is going to say that Jesus is the chief shepherd so uh, whether you're a pastor or not, we are all sheep in the, in, the, in the flock of Jesus, and there's nothing demeaning about being in Jesus' uh, flock. It's the very best place to be. But in God's plan, God has uh, ordained that local churches be shepherded by elders or under-shepherds, deputy shepherds under Jesus as the chief shepherd, and uh, that these are authorized leaders over the sheep, but are under the chief shepherd, okay? Jesus is the chief shepherd, then you have elder pastor, then you have sheep. That's the 
pecking order, if you want to say it that way, the org chart in the church by God's design. And here we have the writer of Hebrews saying essentially the same thing. Look at verse 17. Here is now describing what should this look like. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, let's just scan a moment here in chapter 13. What, is, what does this chapter have to say about leadership? And you'll notice that he talks about leadership in verses 7 through 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. He talks about leadership, obviously, in verses 17 through 19. And then he urges uh, a greeting in verse 24 to the leaders of the church at Rome. This letter is written to the church at Rome. And so what do we just take from that? We take from that that right away, one of the high priorities of the apostolic church was leadership. And this is first century. This is before uh, the nature of, of Christ had been clearly defined. Some of those heresies in the second and third century that were then clarified towards orthodoxy. Like they weren't sure who exactly Jesus was in his personhood at this point, but they knew who the leaders were. And I say that to show you that Leadership in the local church is a big deal. This letter is written to the leaders. It's written to the church. And they already know who the leaders are. right? They're the people that, that the church at Rome didn't read this and go, who is he talking about here? Because we have no idea who the leaders are. No, they knew who the leaders were. One of the first things that Paul did was he established leaders. Here's Acts 14, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So the Apostle Paul, in his missionary journeys, he's going, he's starting churches, and every time he does that, his eye is looking for those individuals that he could tap to be, to be leaders in that church before he moved on, and he did the same thing again. And everywhere that Paul and Barnabas went, they were identifying leaders for those churches. Huge portions of the pastoral epistles are dedicated to what elders look like in terms of their character and what their role and their function uh, should be. And so here at Bethel Church, we talk, we want to be biblical. I appreciated what Mark had to say about the Word of God. Yes, indeed, this is our authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so we look in the Bible and we say, okay, well, we want to be a church that's biblical. And in the Bible, we find that leadership was a high priority. And so therefore, it ought to be for us as well. And we look in the Bible and we find that elders and pastors are called to lead, to feed, and to oversee the church. We have another role, deacons. Deacons are called to lead in the serving ministries of the church. And both of these are really, really important. Now the first word in verse 17 is maybe the hardest one to get over. Can I just identify that, be honest with you here? Notice the very first word here. Here's the responsibility of the sheep, obey. Obey, that's what it says. Now, hair on the back of your head sort of, you know, going up, what do you mean obey? I'm not going to a local church to obey anybody. Well, we should just ask ourselves, what does this word mean? And this, uh, we find this Greek word, it's used in James, for example, James 3, to describe a horse that is bridled, by a rider, 
it is being directed by a rider, okay? If there's confusion between a horse and the rider, what do we call that? That's a rodeo, isn't it, right? <laughs> Who's in charge here, right? The bucking bronco is an example of confusion about who's in charge between the rider and the horse. How many of you have ever been to a rodeo church? Where there seems to be confusion in the church about who actually is in charge around here. And it just looks a lot like a bucking bronco. That's sort of the culture of the church. We don't want that here. And I don't think we have to have that here because the Bible makes it clear who's leading the church. I was at Strax and Van Til recently, and uh, actually it's been some time ago, it wasn't recently, but I was there, and whenever I go to a store, you know, I've pastored here almost 20 years, you're always running into people, you know, from the church, people that you know, and so these people came up to me, and they have those uh, carts where they make it for children, right, where they have the little, it's like a little car, you know what I'm talking about? Well, this particular cart, they had two little children, and they were in the front, and there's a wheel for both of them. Right, so they think that they're steering the car, and uh, so we had a little conversation and all of that. But I was struck by the thought of a two-wheeled, two-steering wheel car. Like, could that ever work? I don't think so. Right? Now, some of us know what it's like to have somebody who is not in the driver's seat who thinks that they're in the driver's seat. <laughs> and what do we call that? backseat driving, right? And you're finally like, do you want to be driving this car? If not, just keep your yapper shut, right? (laughs) A car, to properly function, has to know who's driving, right? There's a structure there. There's only one wheel in the car for a reason. And in the church, by God's design, there's also one wheel. And that wheel is handled by the elders of the church, okay? Plurality of leadership, plurality of elders, and that's our practice here at Bethel Church. So to be clear, uh, the elders are at the wheel. The rest of the church is called to obey and submit. That's what the verse says, okay? To obey and submit. So obedience is the action. Submission, though, is an attitude, If you've been a parent, you know that there's a big difference between obedience and submission. The child can obey you, but their attitude is just like saying, I resent that you're in charge around here, right? It is both an attitude and an action. What it means is this. The word is used for yielding your seat, okay? Yielding your seat. It's respect. It's appreciation. It's sort of a deferentialness towards the leader. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about authority. And here's here's another verse, Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so the Christian, we talked about this when we were talking about uh, politics a month ago. The Christian respects authority and submits to it as an act of worship to the authority over that authority, right? I, I worship God and respect his authority as I submit to the police officer, or I submit to Caesar, or I submit to the leader in the church, okay? It's an act of worship to God himself. 
Now, you might look at this and say, well, that doesn't seem right. Like, they can tell me what to do and everything. No, okay? It doesn't mean that. It's in spiritual matters that the, the elder or the pastor is in authority. So if, the, you know, if, 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 he come, if, if Mark comes here and says, you know what, from, the, from this point on, this campus, we're cheering for the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles, right? <laughs> we say, oh, no, we're not, right? <laughs> we draw the line there. That's inappropriate. Okay. But in spiritual priorities, and spiritual things, we defer to the leader. Now, that doesn't mean the leader is always right. It, we don't worship the leader, but we worship the God who's empowered the leader to lead over in spiritual matters. Now, you might say, well, that sounds like the leaders have got it easy. Like, you know, Mark's going to walk in here, and we're just all slave labor for him. Like, that just doesn't seem right to me. I mean, what a cush job. Why couldn't I have applied for this job around here if that's the way that it's going to be? Because you could look at that and say, that sounds fantastic to be the leader. Actually, notice the verse. Okay? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, that doesn't sound quite so good, does it? What does that mean? As hard as it is at times to follow a leader, who has the harder role? I would submit to you the leader has the harder role, okay? To know that everything that you do is something that you are going to give an account to Almighty God for is a responsibility that is a burden to the leader, and it ought to be. To realize that the consequences of how you lead the impact that you're having on the people is something that God Almighty is going to hold you account for. Is something that if we really understood it, I think all of us would be like, I'd rather not have, maybe I'd rather not do that. If that's, what, if that's how high the stakes are. And indeed they are. To realize that from this day forward, Mark Colton is going to give an account to Almighty God for the quality of his leadership and shepherding here at this campus is a very sobering reality, okay? Very sobering. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes this evaluation that God has for spiritual leaders. This is 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, in other words, that purifying fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. And the picture there is that like a fire, God's judgment upon the quality of the leader's shepherding will show it for what it really is. That which has been done for the glory of God, that which has been done, has been done biblically, that which has been done lovingly and sacrificially will for the leader on the judgment day be like gold and silver and precious stones. But that which has been done selfishly, that which has been done uh, you know, uh, autocratically, that which has not resembled the ministry of, of Christ himself, will just burn up. 
Yeah, he might get to heaven. He might get through there, but he's going to step into heaven. He's going to have nothing to show for it. He's just barely going to get there. So what will be the evaluation of the Lord Jesus upon the, the ministry of Mark Colton over the years to come? I don't know, okay? I don't know, but that is a very sobering reality. The great day will reveal what was really done for the glory of God. I was recently at a grave. Um, I saw the grave of a, of a pastor, and I gotta tell you, the tombstone was absolutely over the top. Uh, it was lavish. It described all of his accomplishments, how many people went to his church, how many people he baptized. I mean, it was like his mom wrote it, okay? And I just kind of looked at that, and I was like, wow, you know? Does it matter what's on your, on your tombstone? No. It matters what Jesus says about your life. That's what matters, okay? I remember the great evangelist George Whitfield, uh, famous, more famous than any in, the, in the colonial America. He was the most famous man in America. And they, uh, they asked him one day, hey, you know, George Whitfield, what do you want on your tombstone? And he said this. He said, here's what I want. Here lies GW. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. And that's the spirit of it. What men say about us, what our tombstones say about us, it doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus says about us. Okay? And I charge Mark to minister in a way that Jesus commends him for his ministry here. The best words we can hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? Well done. Okay? So how does the leader then do that? And that is here in this verse. Notice what it says. They are keeping watch over your souls. What is the elder, the pastor doing within the, the congregation? He is keeping watch over the souls, the spiritual life of the church. That word for watch over, it means sleeplessness. Okay, sleeplessness. I have a three-year-old and one-year-old. I know about this. Okay? We have a monitor uh, that is, is constantly monitoring, monitoring the girls like all night long and Jennifer keeps it on her side of the bed thankfully uh, and you know I, I've learned a little bit about what it means to watch over by watching Jennifer with that monitor and with the kids because she's like asleep with one eye but I swear one eye's awake all night right the little sound little noise whatever she's boom she's a mom she's about it right she's keeping watch over her children. In fact, you think of uh, the, the shepherds at, on, on the night Jesus was born, right? What does the text says? That they were keeping watch over their flocks by night. To be a shepherd is to have, even at night, one eye's closed, one eye's open, one eye's sort of watching for the wolves. How are the sheep doing? Everything okay? That's what it means to be a quality shepherd. You're not just, you're not giving up on your people. You're not just place holding. You are there. You care about the church. You care about their, their spiritual walk and their lives and what's going on in their life. And I'm here to tell you right now, I sense in Mark and in Jen that there are people that keep watch over people. They care about, they're going to care about you, okay? We've, we've hired a guy that is going to take care of you. I really firmly believe that, and I'm very thankful for that. You say, well, like what? What are they keeping watch over? They're guarding the moral and spiritual purity and vitality of the church. They are watching for the unity of the church, the direction of the church, the spiritual temperature of the church, the financial health of the church, the relationships within the church, the mission of the church, discipleship in the church, and so many other things. 
So again, to ask the question, which is easier, to be a sheep or to be a shepherd? To drive or to ride? In fact, let me poll today. How many of you got to church today and you rode? How many riders? Okay. How many drivers today? How many of you actually drove? Okay. Today, this morning, just as an example, was it easier to ride or to drive? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? Right? Just look at the white knuckles on the people that uh, drove here all the way. It was much easier to ride today. And it is much easier, it's much easier to be a sheep than to be a shepherd. The stakes are that high. So what do shepherds need to accomplish this goal? And here's the rest of this verse. Notice what it says. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, did you hear that? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Israel and and Moses is an easy example of the kind of relationship between the people and the leader that leads to the groaning of the leader. Why? What was Israel all the time doing? Murmuring about this, groaning about that. Why is this this way? If only we had meat like we had back in Egypt. Oh, this manna day after day supernaturally provided for us. As an example of how petty we can get. Can you think of that? Every morning there's a miracle. But you get tired of the miracle every day, free food, right? That's, that's, but we're, our hearts are that way, aren't they? We're so easily petty about things and so easily groaning about things. In fact, the word there, it means to sigh. Okay, let them do this with joy and not with sighing. In other words, Mark should never, if somebody says, hey, are you the, are you the campus pastor of the Cedar Lake campus or those people there? He should never have to go, yes. I am. So the verse is asking this question. Are you following your leaders in such a way that you are a source of joy to them and you're not a burden to them? Okay? Now, why is this important? And the writer here appeals to all of our self-interest. And I'm going to go back to the driving example here a moment. What are some of the kinds of things that passengers say that to the driver feels like a burden? How about things like this? You're driving too fast. You're driving too slow. I know a better way. You turned too quickly back there. You don't turn quick enough, in my opinion. It's hot in here. It's cold in here. Could you avoid the bumps a little bit more? Why don't we drive like everyone else is driving? This car needs a paint job. My seat's not comfortable. Why do you get to drive? Are we there yet? (laughs) Just to throw out some examples of the kinds of things that completely annoy the driver. Now I wonder, those of you that have been around churches very long, do any of those kinds of things sound familiar to the kinds of things that Sheep in the flock will sometimes bah to the shepherd. Now what happens over time when the shepherd is constantly hearing that kind of murmuring? He gets discouraged over time. What happens when you're in a car 
And the driver is discouraged, he's dismayed, or she's dismayed. Is that good for you? Is a lethargic driver good for you? A sleepy driver good for you? No. You want the driver to be alert. You want the driver to be encouraged. You want the driver to be on it, right? Why? Because your hind end is in that car as well. And if that driver is not driving well, who suffers from it? You do. You do. You don't want to be in an accident. Six years ago today, I was in a head-on car accident after the staff Christmas party on a snowy day. Imagine that. A snowy day. By the way, this morning I canceled tonight's staff Christmas party because I do not want to get anywhere near what I went through that night. It was terrible. Trust me, you don't want to be in a car accident. And ecclesiastically speaking, you don't want to be in a church accident. You don't. Everybody suffers. Everybody suffers in the car. So what Hebrews 13, 17 is calling us to is loving cooperation. What will make Mark's role here uh, life-giving to him? The loving cooperation of the flock. It doesn't mean Mark's always right. His wife is, but Mark is not always right. It doesn't mean he's God. It doesn't mean he's Jesus. It doesn't mean he's any of those things. But it does mean that he is here at this campus. He's your pastor. And as his ministry goes, in some ways, so goes your own walk with God. Okay? So it's in all of our best interest that this guy stays incredibly encouraged and that he knows that we're behind him. And when he makes a mistake, we have grace. And when he has success, we have encouragement. It's much like marriage in that way. I've learned a few things being married a few years now. And Jennifer and I will sometimes say, you know, when we're having conflict or whatever, I'll say, hey, we're in the canoe together here, right? If, if she's discouraged, that is not in my best interest. Why? Because I'm kind of in that with her, right? If I'm discouraged, it's not in her best interest. Why? Because she's in the canoe with me, in the car with me. And it is in our best interest for him, for Mark to be, incredibly encouraged. And we're going to do our best leadership-wise to keep him encouraged, to keep his family encouraged. But so much of his happiness and sort of vitality is going to depend upon the encouragement and, and you all, the way that you just love him and his family. And I want to encourage you to lay it on thick, all right? Love him extravagantly. Why? Because it's in your own best interest to do so, spiritually speaking. Now, what might that sound? I'm going to go back to my driving illustration here. What's that sound like? What does it mean to encourage Mark? Going back to my driving illustration. Mark, I think you're a wonderful driver. And I love the way you made that U-turn back there. My personal preference would be that it was a little warmer in the car, but if everyone else around here is comfortable, then I'm willing to do what's best for the campus. We're driving a little faster than I would personally prefer, but I know that we're in good hands. Pastor Mark, we're with you. We're praying for you. That's what it would sound like. Because pastors, we love to hear this kind of thing, right? There's going to be problems. There are are problems ahead, for sure. And Mark's going to have to deal with those, and we're going to help him and deal with him as well. But the goal here is this, is the prevailing attitude and feeling, the culture here, should be shepherds who lead well and sheep who encourage them. Okay? That's what we're going for. 
And that's the picture of leadership that we have here in this verse, okay? Just to say it, summarize it here. Shepherds following Jesus, expressing their love for him by watching over the church, the church loving Jesus by submitting to the leaders placed over them, shepherds loving sheep, sheep lovingly cooperating with shepherds, which produces this warm vitality and love within the church that is a blessing to all. That's what we're looking for, amen? Okay, okay. Now here's the thing. I am confident that we have brought a high-quality shepherd to this campus. I'm excited today. Some of you say we're excited. I'm happy for you. I'm more excited than you are, I guarantee it, okay? I am excited today about Mark being with us. But you gotta realize a few things. He's brand new here, okay? He's brand new. He's never been a campus pastor before. This is all new to him. The culture of our church is new to him. The community is new to him. He's got six, seven, eight hundred people at this campus. Everybody's new to him. So we need to give him a lot of grace for at least a week or two. Until he acclimates to everything. And there is a lot of work that lies ahead. And I'm just, I'm, I don't know what the work's gonna be, I don't know what the troubles are gonna be, but here's what I do know. It is the quality of this relationship, the culture of the relationship, that will largely determine how well those struggles are dealt with in the future, whether they're divisive or not. And so I'm just urging you to support Mark and his family, I urge you for really all the, all the pastors and elders and office holders even at this campus, we need to serve with joy so that you get the idea that we love serving Jesus. And as we do that and as you do that, I really believe the best days of this campus lie ahead of us. I am confident of that and I'm excited about that. Let's see what God's going to do in Southwest Lake County. Amen? Amen. Amen.